This episode was recorded on September 22nd, 2023. Welcome to Conjuncture. My name is Christina Heatherton. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Jordan T. Camp. Jordan is an Associate Professor of American Studies at Trinity College. He's the author of Incarcerating the Crisis, Freedom Struggles and the Rise of the Neoliberal State on UC Press. He and I co-edited Policing the Planet, Why the Policing Crisis Led to Black Lives Matter on Verso. With Laura Polito, he edited and completed the late Clyde Woods' Development Drowned and Reborn, The Blues and Bourbon Restorations in Post-Katrina New Orleans on University of Georgia Press. He's currently a visiting fellow at the Yukon Humanities Institute, where he is at work on a new project entitled The Southern Question. He's a prolific author, editor, and you might recognize him as the co-host of Conjuncture. I'm excited to be talking with him today about conjunctural analysis, Stuart Hall, and confronting the current crisis here at the Action Lab in Ossining, New York. So Jordan Camp, welcome to Conjuncture. Thanks for having me. So. Conjunctural analysis has been formative to all your work, so formative, in fact, that uh, we have developed a whole show around it. So to begin, can you explain what is a conjuncture? Is it a moment in time? Is it something more complicated? Uh, yeah, let's start there. Yeah, well, thanks. Um, so the concept of a conjuncture comes from the writings of the Italian Marxist theorists Antonio Gramsci, he didn't invent the term, other people had used it, uh, Lenin had used it, but the way that Gramsci used it really has informed my work and informs, as you know, uh, the podcast and the web series. And the way that Gramsci used it was to talk about uh, a moment when the relations of forces, he meant political, military, economic, you know, enter into uh, a distinct uh, shape. and. Gramsci was using that concept in a particular moment or conjuncture post-World War I Italy, where you had seen very turbulent uh, labor struggles. He was immersed in them uh, in Turin, which was the industrial epicenter of Italian capitalism, uh, active as a journalist, as a socialist, a uh, founding member of the Italian Communist Party. and. Uh, that conjuncture was also, though, of course, defined by the rise of fascism, and Benito Mussolini comes to power in 1922. So this idea of a conjuncture or a, a moment was a way of naming the historical and geographical context that led to fascism, and it really distinguished uh, Gramsci. I also, as you mentioned in the introduction, I have drawn a lot from Stuart Hall's conjunctural analysis. Um, whereas, you know, Gramsci had come to terms with the rise of fascism in post-World War I Italy, what Hall was doing was using uh, Gramsci's uh, analysis of a particular conjuncture, kind of modifying it to understand the situation with the rise of what Hall termed authoritarian populism in Britain uh, in the 70s and 80s. And taken together, what they've given us is this method of conjunctural analysis, which helps us to look at struggles over material conditions and meanings in particular historical and geographical context. And it's that method of conjunctural analysis and that concept of a conjuncture, which taken together, I think, can offer some useful tools, 
not only for analyzing politics and economics, military, policing, uh, incarceration, but also the possibilities of social change. Um, so I could say more about that, but that's yeah, trust me, I'll make you say more about that. But let's stay with uh, Gramsci for a second. Uh, I, I appreciate it in your answer. You called attention to conjunctural analysis as a dynamic method, something that allows us to really kind of behold the dynamism of any given uh, kind of political moment or conjuncture, as you described. Uh, and I think that what's interesting in your work is that there is a dynamism in how you engage with Gramsci. So let's talk about Gramsci for a second. You engage Gramsci in a lot of your work, in a lot of recent writings. You have a recently co-written piece with Jenny Greenberg in Antipode, Counterinsurgency Reexamined. You also have a new piece uh, uh, called Gramsci and Geography, where you dive through an extensive collection of Gramsci's writings, letters, previously untranslated materials alongside uh, bibliographies, uh, biographies, and other writings about Gramsci. In doing this research, I wonder, did anything new emerge for, for you about Gramsci or how he might speak to the current moment? Yeah, thanks for that. You know, that Gramsci and Geography uh, essay was a commission, and it came in the context of the pandemic, right? A, a moment of crisis that was, in my judgment, um, fundamental right and forced for me uh, a period as we all were into of, of isolation and so in that context i really took a deep dive reading hundreds of things that uh, Gramsci himself had written um, and also the new scholarship that's been um, really i think enriched by this italian scholarship um, that had either been previously uh, poorly or, or untranslated. There had been scholars who had been delving into this. We had interviewed Marcus Green, the secretary for the International Gramsci Society, people in Britain like Peter Thomas, uh, Stefan Kipfer, Jillian Hart. I mean, there's a, there's a range of scholars who have been you know, doing this work, and I try to build on, on their scholarship um, to suggest that the image of Gramsci was much more complicated and complex um, than one that simply, for example, saw him as a, as a party man. Uh, you know, someone who, you know, uh, simply kind of towed a political line of the Italian Communist Party. And I think that that becomes really important when you delve in uh, to understanding his life and his evolution as a political thinker and as a radical theorist. Um, one of the most important and interesting things is that he develops serious disagreements uh, with his former comrades uh, over the direction of the communist movement in Italy and in the world, right? You can see this in his letters. Um, he describes in great detail how he had become isolated, but he says, that you know these disagreements had big political stakes for him. He talks about it as if he was you know the captain of a ship and there was a shipwreck, right? Uh, and so he he felt some responsibility for the passengers on board, right? But he couldn't minimize the problems. And so when he was thinking about this conjuncture that gave rise to fascism, he wasn't just emphasizing you know repression. He thought that he and his comrades had made miscalculations, strategic errors, 
problems of analysis. And you can really see him working this out um, in the prison notebooks. I mean, it's a magisterial thing, but one of the things that he ends up emphasizing, again in his letters and in the notebooks, is that uh, you needed to try to understand why it was that so many people had consented to fascism. And he really emphasized the kind of geographical or regional dynamic where you had elites in the north, capitalist elites in the north, that described the south, where he was from. He was from Sardinia, right? And his first and only speech in the Italian parliament, he uh, described these dynamics, right? And the fascists tried to interrupt him multiple times. You know nothing of the south. Uh, they would say, including Mussolini, and uh, Gramsci responded, I am a southerner, having been born in Sardinia uh, to a poor uh, background after his father had been arrested and incarcerated. Um, he really struggled uh, both financially and economically, but it made him attentive to the uneven dynamics between North industrial capitalism and this underdeveloped, you know, uh, southern, you know, peasant region, right? So Gramsci was particularly uh, concerned with how capitalist elites in the North had depicted peasants in the South as inferior, right? He uh, describes a, a racist project, right, of depicting the South's uh, poverty, um, the impoverishment of the peasants as a product of their own behavior, right? Uh, he famously called this the Southern question, which is Marcus Green had taught us in previous episode, right? It was the racial question for Gramsci. So that's another part of Gramsci that emerges. He's got serious disagreements with his former comrades. He's totally opposed to the Stalinization of the party. He's an independent thinker, one who's uh, committed to to anti-racism um, and to anti-imperialism. And I, I would say, uh, crucially in that context, his disagreements with the Comintern, which I you know, could say more about, he had been you know, a representative for the Italian Communist Party for the Comintern. But one of the things that he becomes concerned with is the specificity of the Italian situation. How to build up a broad democratic alliance between the peasants of the South and the workers of the North to defeat fascism. And he thought that this required a democratic phase, a, a constituent assembly. So the vision, I think, that's emerging of Gramsci is a profoundly uh, democratic thinker, a socialist thinker, an independent thinker, um, and one who was uh, an anti-racist as well as an anti-capitalist. And it's that uh, Gramsci that I think is, is so important um, to understand as a, a model for conjunctural analysis uh, in our own time. Mm. I, I think uh, people wouldn't be surprised to hear that Gramsci was an anti-capitalist thinker, but I think with some of the new translations, as you mentioned, uh, Marcus Green and Peter but uh, Joseph Buttigieg's uh, translation of uh, Gramsci's writings on subaltern social groups, I think the question of how he was thinking about racism is really, I think, a, a new insight, a new field of inquiry. Um, so, you know, some people who think that Gramsci never 
wrote about race or racism often point to Stuart Hall and his essay, Gramsci's Relevance for the Study of Race and Ethnicity. Um, uh, of course, some of the materials, as we've talked about, weren't translated during Stuart Hall's time. So, uh, so it's just the kind of happenstance of, of what kind of material we have available. Um, but I want to turn to that because I want to ask you about conjunctural analysis and Stuart Hall, somebody else that, as you mentioned, you are uh, very indebted to. Uh, you're working on several new pieces about Stuart Hall. Your first book is obviously in deep uh, dialogue with Stuart Hall. You titled your book, Incarcerating the Crisis. Of course, Stuart Hall and his Birmingham colleagues titled their book, Policing the Crisis. Um, so I, I want to ask you two questions about this. First, how and why do you draw on Stuart Hall to think about conjunctural analysis? And two, as you mentioned before, Hall's context was the rise of neoliberalism and authoritarian populism in Britain. How do you translate him to our own context? Yeah, thanks for this. I mean, the first thing to say is, in my judgment, Stuart Hall was one of the most important radical intellectuals and, and theorists uh, of his generation, right? He made profound uh, contributions to our thinking about race and class, about politics and about culture, as a founding you know, figure of what became known as the Birmingham School of Cultural Studies. You know, his impact across the disciplines has been immense. Um, and, you know, that essay that you mentioned, the Gramsci's relevance for the study of race and ethnicity, wrote during the 1980s, and it, it's a really profound uh, investigation of Gramsci's writings. You know, Gramsci's writings, you know, Gramsci wasn't an author uh, in a contemporary sense from his notebooks, right? Those those notebooks weren't published during his lifetime, right? He, he, he does get released in the end from a fascist prison before dying in 37, but his works don't start getting published in uh, Italian until the late 1940s. Um, there's some things that get translated into English, but they don't really appear on a large scale until this 1971 edition, the international publishers, the selections from the prison notebook. And so in the early 1970s, you had a lot of people reading Gramsci in the English-speaking Anglophone world really, you know, um, on a much larger scale. And Stuart Hall emerges as one of the finest uh, in interpreters of Gramsci um, and, you know, starts drawing out this, this method of conjunctural analysis in that period. And what he says in that Gramsci's relevance is that uh, while Gramsci's uh, context may have been different, that his concepts and his method were really important, right? And he uses uh, Gramsci's approach to analyzing kind of a specific social formation, the uneven geographies, you know, the ways in which, um, you know, you can see that in his notes on Italian history from that selections uh, version of his notebooks. He says, this can help us understand, you know, racially stratified societies, right? And um, that becomes important. He illustrates how it can help us understand the dynamics of uh, like South Africa with, you know, Bantu stands, you know, racial segregation within an advanced capitalist country or, you know, the primitive accumulation to use Marx's conceptualization of capital 
in North America, or the uneven or underdevelopment of the you know, African and, 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 and Latin American uh, context. So, you know, he demonstrates that Gramsci is relevant for understanding the uneven geographies of capitalism and racism central, or racisms, he says in plural, right? Um, centrality to, to capitalist development. At the same time, he has this line where he says that, uh, you know, Gramsci didn't write, I'm paraphrasing, you know, directly about race and racism. That's caused some controversy. There's been some debate. There's been a lot of pushback on this. You know, the, the Italian school, which has really emphasized the philological reads of Gramsci, uh, have shown, you know, that, you know, and, and, and Green among them, that uh, Gramsci wrote very clearly about race uh, and, and, and racism. Uh, nonetheless, um, you know, as you pointed out, um, the, a lot of the materials that um, Buttigieg and uh, Green labored to provide us, you know, weren't, weren't available to him then. So that, that should be a kind of caution for us not to rely so heavily on secondary sources from an earlier period. We have to reread Gramsci. Uh, and I think Hall had spent his career emphasizing the importance of uh, a close read of, of Gramsci um, for uh, doing a kind of conjunctural analysis of your own. You know, he says in this essay, Gramsci and us, you know, you can't just kind of, you know, plop the Sardinian down in a totally different historical and geographical context and kind of expect him to, you know, solve our problems for us and come with all our magic answers or just, you know, uh, I don't know, quote the prison notebooks like it's a religious text, as, as many Marxists had done, right? And mm -hmm. expect, I don't know, something Marx wrote with Engels in 1948, to be, you know, deal with all your issues in 1968, right? You had to you know, do your own analysis. That's what he gives us, the method of conjunctural analysis. And I've been very uh, inspired by Stuart Hall's writings, uh, you know, um, since graduate school, and particularly, as you mentioned, Policing the Crisis, that Hall had co-authored with his Birmingham colleagues. That was a very important study that looked at the situation in uh, Britain in the 70s, and it did a conjunctural analysis uh, of the situation there, right? The worst economic crisis since the 1930s, a crisis of authority or a crisis of legitimacy of the state, and the ways in which the right was able to legitimate authoritarian solutions to that crisis kind of through race and racism, right? And, um, you know, specifically focus on these kind of law and order politics as a way of understanding the conjuncture as a whole. Now that had, you know, been really influential um, in British cultural studies. A lot of his students did important work. Uh, Paul Gilroy, you know, Hazel Carby, Michael Denning. Um, in our own con context, you know, the whole field of prison studies and American studies, uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore had been influenced by it. You know, I, I built on all these scholars to try to do a conjunctural analysis of the U.S. and to try to think about how it is that we had seen the situation where, you know, the U.S. had built um, this neoliberal carceral state over the last few decades 
and to emphasize that that happened in response to a series of conjunctural moments or crises, and likewise to understand the central role of racisms in legitimating, you know, the buildup of this uh, authoritarian state form, you know, and I, I remain indebted to Hall. I, I, I go back to him constantly, and I feel like part of that translation part of the question, and I should say here, you know, really, for the concept of translation, I'm drawing on Gramsci himself, uh, as well as particularly, you know, Jillian Hart, Stefan Kipfer, Ayaz Malik, and these Gramscian geographers, to suggest the importance of, you know, not like a literal translation, but a political project of translatability into different contexts. And so part of the issue is how do you translate, you know, into a different historical and geographical situation? We're not in early neoliberalism anymore, right? You know, when I sent my dissertation to Stuart Hall and we went and visited him in 2013, you know, we talked about this moment that we were in, right? After 08, the global economic crisis, you know, the, the morbid symptoms of the crisis that had emerged all around us. And you'll remember one of the things that Stuart said to me was that, well, you know, maybe we've entered into a new epoch, which was amazing to me because, you know, he'd spent <laughs> decades saying, you know, apocals kind of too macro, we need something that's more specific and so on. But I think what he was saying is, don't accept my conclusions about this earlier moment. The world is dynamic. It's always changing. It's not static. Capitalism is not static. Mm -hmm. It's not an essence. Uh, I don't think it can best be analyzed as an ideal type, uh, you know, with these abstract laws that some Marxist theorists would have. But instead, you know, what Stuart Hall gave us was as much as anything, he, he had translated Gramsci's method of conjunctural analysis into post-war Britain and invited us to do it. And I've tried to take you know, that invitation uh, quite seriously and to open it up. And it's not, you know, it's not mine or yours, but I hope everyone uh, can, you know, learn to ask Gramscian questions and mm. take up this method. Mm -hmm. Well, you heard it here, folks. We're renaming the show Epoch instead of Conjuncture. <laughs> All right, we will talk about that later. One of the things I've really loved about doing this show with you is that uh, we've covered a range of different places, uh, you know, within which people are uh, conducting conjunctural analysis. So we've thought about uh, housing struggles in South Africa, housing struggles in neoliberal New York, or the carceral conjuncture in central Appalachia. Uh, but equally, I don't think we planned this when we started, but in almost every episode, people give us a, a, a sort of story of how they come to conjunctural analysis. From the first episode where Tony Bogues talks about his relationship with Jamaican workers and a kind of conjunctural analysis that comes largely through CLR James or Robin Kelly talking about kind of two really phenomenal encounters at two different points of his life with Walter Rodney or Jillian Hart talking about Gramsci or Michael Denning talking about working with Stuart Hall. So I just want to invite you, you know, can you tell us a little bit about how you come to conjunctural analysis. Yeah, well, as you know, I grew up in Mississippi. I couldn't tell. <laughs> right, yeah, maybe, maybe there's some cues for that. I moved to California for graduate school and I met a professor in California, Manolo Callahan, who I, I'd worked with, and he told me that uh, he couldn't talk to me until I had read the prison notebooks. There was no basis for any discussion. 
Uh, so I took that quite seriously. I read, you know, the 1971 edition as hard as I could, you know, and analysis of situations and so on and so forth. And, you know, so that kind of set me on this trajectory 20 years ago. And, um, you know, Manolo had introduced me to people like Gustavo Castro, who was doing work in Chiapas, uh, where I was doing field work for a master's thesis uh, about the Zapatista movement. And I saw uh, Gustavo and Manolo and others, and that introduced me to a broader kind of Latin American Gramscian tradition uh, that had seen conjunctural analysis as integral to popular education. They were also drawn on people like Paulo Freire, the Brazilian uh, exile, uh, you know, who had taught at Harvard in the U.S. and emphasized uh, the pedagogies for liberation. And so there's a combination between kind of conjunctural analysis and pedagogies of liberation. When I went to graduate school, I got the great pleasure of working uh, at Santa Barbara with George Lipsitz, who, you know, had famously drawn on Gramsci uh, and his life in the struggle. Great book about Ivory Perry and St. Louis, the civil rights activist. And kind of, you know, these Gramscian encounters uh, encouraged me to, to delve more deeply. You know, my professors did. And it was ultimately, I think, you know, reading, I mentioned Police in the Crisis. I should, I'd be remiss not to know that Hall's uh, works in this neglected text, also The Hard Road to Renewal, uh, was really important um, to me. Um, and, you know, because Hall, above all, was an essayist. And I think conjunctural analysis is kind of, you know, it's done in the heat of a political moment. You're trying to intervene in a political situation uh, and to illuminate, you know, the possibilities uh, for change, right? And so I thought that this was pretty um, an important methodology, you know. And so I won't go through every twist and turn of it, but I have come back to um, a renewed appreciation uh, of, of that method. I think, you know, um, in dialogue with this uh, two generations of, of Gramsci scholars um, who I, I think taken together are, are, are helping um, inaugurate what I would like to call a kind of conjunctural turn in, in Gramscian studies, you know, to, to use Gramsci to translate him into different contexts and to promote this, this, this method, which is not a method in a kind of rarefied sociological sense. It, it's linked to politics and to theory. And so, you know, it only acquires significance if it, you know, illuminates, you know, areas where you can, you know, intervene, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it meant everything to me when, when, when I, I mentioned this Hall encounter, when he, you know, uh, I mentioned there was one difference of interpretation uh, between my analysis of the conjuncture and his, and he said, don't worry, Jordan, I don't, I don't think this undermines your efforts at all. So I, I feel like, you know, there's been a, a few turning points um, in the um, development of my approach to the method, but I'm very grateful to my teachers along the way. Mm -hmm. uh, and let's maybe think about one other teacher of yours. At, at Santa Barbara, you had, uh, I mean, an extraordinary committee that not only included George Lipsitz and Avery Gordon, but also uh, Cedric Robinson, who was someone that was very close to you, and also Clyde Woods, who, as I mentioned earlier, um, 
you worked with Laura Polito to complete his final manuscript, and it's an absolutely beautiful book, and thank you for your work to do that. Uh, one of the things that I see you uh, inspired by both Woods and by Gramsci is the way that you think very seriously about culture and cultural producers. So, you know, in your first book, but in subsequent works, uh, you not only focus on the kind of key theorists, the Halls, the Du Bois, the Gramsci's, but you focus on poets like Jane Cortez and June Jordan and New Orleans fantastic poet Sonny Patterson. You think about visual artists like Jose Ramirez. You think about musicians like Cyril Neville and the Dirty Dozen Brass Band and, and Marvin Gaye too. Uh, so, um, can you talk a little bit about the turn to cultural producers? Why is that important to you and how does that sharpen our conjunctural analysis? Yeah, well, thanks for this. I mean, one, it was a real honor to, to work with Laura Polito and, and completing uh, Clyde, what would be Clyde's last book, Development Drown and Reborn. And, you know, that uh, approach that Clyde really modeled for, for a lot of us um, has been, as you say, incredibly influential. And he, he takes Gramsci quite seriously. You can see his core categories, you know, these, he talks about a blues block, right? And he's also thinking about these regional blocks. Um, and of course, using that to describe kind of alliances between on one hand, uh, elite forces who are seeking to accumulate capital, power, right? And on the other, you know, he, I think draws on extends Gramsci to think about the alliances that are built through the blues and black working class expressive culture and to think about culture as a key site of, of transformation. He uses the term following Gramsci organic intellectuals, mm -hmm. you know, intellectuals of their class um, to think about those dynamics. And I think that, you know, that uh, approach um, is you know, reflected in, in all of my writing. Um, and it points to the understanding of culture as a site of struggle, right? Over, over meaning and over material conditions. And, you know, the reason that I look at the artists and the activists and the organic intellectuals connected to social movements is a kind of sense that I, that I get from Gramsci, that I get from Woods that I get from uh, Lipsis. And also, you know, I should say, you know, Cedric Robinson, if you go through his writings, you know, um, we'd recently gone to his archives mm -hmm. uh, at his home in, in Santa Barbara. And, you know, he talks about, he uh, conceptualized the black movement essentially Gramscian terms, right? So, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have these teachers to kind of reinforce a sense that, you know, intellectual work, cultural work, right, is a site of political activity itself, right? And that becomes, I think, really important for understanding social change and movement building, right? Because these organic intellectuals, what they can do is uh, confront what Gramsci called common sense, right? Or think of it as kind of conception of the world, right? That on one hand, Gramsci used it to be describing a kind of uncritical conception, you know, elements of uh, 
folklore, kind of perceived wisdom that naturalize social relations of capitalism and take them out of their historical and material foundations, right? So you see that. But what Grouchy was also thinking about, and what I try to be attentive to, is that common sense is con contradictory, right? He says, you know, it's filled with Stone Age elements and elements of a, you know, future philosophy of a more systemic and coherent uh, scientific view that can see the causes of your social and economic problems in the organization of the political economy and therefore understanding the, the possibilities of change. And that he calls good sense. And the good sense, he says, is the healthy nucleus that exists within the common sense. You know? And so the idea there for uh, Gramsci was how do you hear the good sense in, you know, uh, kind of folk music and culture, right? Or, you know, in theater or in the culture as a whole. And Gramsci saw the possibility for ordinary people, for working people, for the peasants, for shepherds, for farmers, uh, for students, for journalists, right? To um, transform the common sense and to introduce a totally different culture, a new culture. For Gramsci, that was a, a democratic and a, and a socialist culture. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it feels important to mention that uh, Clyde Woods, I think, took those principles very seriously. He supported us in our writings uh, in uh, Skid Row, our collaborations with organizers there who are facing hyper-policing. He, I think, uh, did a lot of work to elevate the good sense out of the common sense. And when he passed, there was a, a, quite a wave of, there were a lot of people in Skid Row who are saying Clyde Woods' name. So it's uh, nice to evoke him today. Uh, so Clyde Woods Presente. Clyde Woods Presente. Well, you mentioned before uh, Gramsci's famous unfinished essay, The Southern Question, which also happens to be the title of your new project. I wonder if you give us a little preview of what you're working on and what kind of questions you're asking. Yeah, thanks for that. So. My new book is entitled The Southern Question. Uh, it draws on Gramsci's, as you say, um, unfinished 1926 essay, some aspects of the Southern Question, which would be his final uh, act of writing and symbolic act in that sense before being arrested in uh, November of 1926 uh, and confined uh, to a fascist prison. You know the. Prosecutor famously said, "We got to stop his brain from working for 20 years," and uh, he wouldn't live 20 years um, because of that repression. And in that essay, Gramsci's making an intervention into the political debates. He had been thinking about the Southern Question again. You know, growing up in Sardinia, he was drawn initially to kind of Sardinia nationalisms. Uh, as a, as a young person, when he, he leaves Sardinia, he's able to go to school at the University of Turin, where he studies philology um, and uh, develops an interest in geography um, and to the attentiveness to place and space. He's a profound geographical and spatial thinker, right? So right through his whole trajectory, you know, as a journalist, as a politician, 
And as a philosopher, the, the Southern question had always been central, but the essay becomes a kind of transition for him um, into the themes that we see in the notebooks. He uses the term hegemony, one of his most famous and lasting contributions uh, in that essay. Uh, he describes the role of the intellectuals, right? The Southern intellectual, as he talks about it, as a representative of the rural bourgeoisie in the South who, you know, uh, serves the interest of, of, of the ruling classes, right? Um, he's thinking also, though, in that essay um, and in, in his writings about the possibility of alliances, you know, between the Southerners, which are largely peasantry, and, and the industrial North. And that becomes one of his most lasting and enduring uh, you know, contributions uh, to the debate. You know, ultimately, um, the Southern question, I said, you know, the prison notebooks were uh, posthumously published. The Southern question actually appears in either 29 or 30. So it was circulated in his time. Um, and um, I think it, it has a kind of profound and enduring uh, relevance for understanding uh, the Southern question in our own time. And I use it as a way to try to understand the resurgence of the far right, of racist nationalist movements 100 years after the rise of fascism. And I think it becomes important to do so. I mean, after all, um, we've seen widespread uh, neo-fascist, white supremacist movements, not the least of which Maloney in Italy, the white supremacist wing of the Republican Party with Donald Trump, Orban in Hungary, uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil, um, and on and on. Um, and what I think, though, in terms of this question of how to translate Gramsci to understand a much different historical and geographical conjuncture uh, needs to be aided by other thinkers in different regions um, who've also been committed to interpreting the Southern question. And so I, I start, my theoretical grounding for the book is to establish a dialogue between, uh, I think, the greatest interpreter of the Southern question in the U.S., uh, W.B. Du Bois, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, stage this dialogue about Gramsci's writings about the importance of the Italian South in relationship to Du Bois's writings about the American South. You know, and he had famously said that the American South had been a site of a struggle between revolution and counter-revolution. And he demonstrated this argument through an analysis of the American Civil War and of Reconstruction, which he understood as a revolutionary event, uh, one that beggared the Greek, a dramatic uh, story that had been underestimated. Um, and he thought that it was the most dramatic experiment in Marxism that the world had ever seen before the Russian Revolution of 1917. But he also saw how vigilantes like the Ku Klux Klan and other racist and terrorist organizations had engaged in insurrectionary activity to overthrow uh, the democratically elected Reconstruction governments uh, in the South. And for Du Bois, that represented a kind of American fascism. And so one of the things that I try to suggest, building on the essay that you and I have written about riots in the master's hall, racism, nationalism, and the crisis of U.S. hegemony, 
um, which has really been foundational to, to the thinking that I'm doing, is that taken together, what Du Bois and Gramsci offers is a relational understanding of racist and far-right nationalisms and the need to understand them on a global scale, right? Um, and so what I do is I, I build from that theoretical premise to look at you know, racist and authoritarian state forms in a comparative frame. Mm -hmm. The Jim Crow US, apartheid South Africa, fascist Italy, and on and on. And so that's a preview of the Southern question. Well, thank you for that. I, I think the, the heat of this political conjuncture is forcing everybody to be a lot more conjunctural in their own analysis. I want to go back to something that you mentioned before because you described something of a conjunctural turn happening both uh, with uh, scholars of Gramsci and people who've been influenced by Gramsci. Um, and uh, I just wanted to invite you to say something about a gathering that you are helping to organize at UC Berkeley uh, later this fall 2023 um, that I think celebrates some of this new thinking. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, I'm, I'm happy to. Yeah, there's a conference that you know, I'm co-organizing on Gramsci and the current conjuncture with uh, Jillian Hart of Berkeley's Geography Department and Marcus Green of the International Gramsci Society. And what the idea is to bring together scholars who are, you know, graduate students, postdoc, junior faculty, senior scholars across the disciplines to think about how Gramsci's method uh, can be a useful tool for understanding and transforming the present. And the conjunctural turn is important. You know, I think there had been a philological turn, a, a, an emphasis on a close read of his core text in their context. And there's some very important methodological uh, criteria that has come out of that scholarship and encouraged us to really think carefully about not just taking what the Sardinian had done and, you know, it's kind of like Hall had warned, you know, you can't just plop him away. You know, what he means by hegemony, for example, right, can only be understood in a particular context, right? There's no fully systematized elaboration of that concept. It kind of works it out in the notebooks. Um, at the same time, one of the things that Gramsci's work enlivens is an emphasis on the political, military, social forces. And this is a really dramatic moment we live in, right? I mean, I think with the economic crisis, you know, certainly after 2020, we saw, you know, truly breathtaking levels of unemployment, you know so much premature death from that pandemic, right? You know, Western states, I think, get delegitimized from their, you know, inability to contain it. Um, uh, massive gender violence, right? Um, you know, attacks on trans communities, um, you know, kind of virulent uh, racisms all around the world. And I think that what these scholars at this gathering are doing or engaging in the work to read Gramsci in his context, 
but to use this conjunctural analysis to try to intervene in these debates to try to make a difference, to try to transform you know, politics and to think relationally, to think about the you know, uh, Italian border, the Mediterranean border in relationship to the US-Mexico border, to think about you know, the dynamics in post-apartheid South Africa, and to think about how those you know, conditions, whether it be Italy or Southern Africa or the United States can be uh, thought together. And so I'm really excited, you know, the International Gramsci Society uh, owes a great deal to the leadership of the late Joseph Buttigieg, who um, unfortunately uh, passed, but his legacy, you know, lives on. And, you know, one of the things he said that I hope this conference can help um, you know, keep into the discussion is that Gramsci remains a profound, you know, democratic thinker that's relevant for our times. And one of the ways that he's relevant is this method of conjunctural analysis. And um, so that's the hope is to promote a robust uh, discussion and, and debate of uh, Gramsci's ongoing relevance. Okay. No small charge. Well, normally we end conjuncture interviews asking people if there's anything we haven't asked them that they want to add, but I wonder if I could end this way. What new types of questions do you think we should be asking about the current conjuncture? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think that, you know, one of the things that we might want to think about in the United States, and here I'm speaking, I'm an American Studies scholar, as you are, uh, and someone who's um, committed to social justice. In this moment, I think we really want to ask, what kinds of analytics are necessary to situate what's happening in our own context in a global frame? and. You know, because sometimes uh, in our field and in our discussions about these challenges, say of the racist far right, or of the pandemic, or of, you know, militarism even can be thought of as, you know, a kind of American exceptionalist frame, mm. you know, that it's uniquely uh, American conditions that we're dealing with. And I think that we ought to not accept that. I mean, it feels awkward to tell the author of Arise this, but I feel like it's important that we try to develop an understanding of our moment that's capacious enough to see that what we're actually dealing with is how can we understand a crisis of neoliberalism at a global scale, right? How do we think about that in relationship to political dynamics in particular places? And think, why do these struggles take the shape that they do well, and remain specific about that? But to understand that to fully comprehend them and to intervene to transform our present, we're going to need this broader analytic, right? And so some of those questions, those how and why questions, I think are absolutely crucial for, you know, understanding politics in our moment. Because what I don't think we need 
is a kind of narrow, you know, nationalist, American nationalist view of our problems. I think that underestimates um, what we're up against. But nor do we need to think that, you know, when we're thinking about the American state, for example, right, that it's the source of all evils. I think we need to think about in a global frame in a much more complicated, you know, way about global conflict, about struggles over hegemony, um, and, and how we might be able to do that by drawing on some of these thinkers uh, from the past, like Antonio Gramsci and Stuart Hall, who are such profoundly independent thinkers. And they, I think, encourage us not to just, you know, uh, accept sound bites or quick tweets or, you know, fancy, you know, imagery, right? Um, but to ask more critical questions and to come up with our intellectual judgments that can actually address, you know, these profound global issues through uh, internationalism and through solidarity. And that can't be done through an American nationalism, you know. So how we move beyond that and how we develop democratic, radical um, transformations are some of the most urgent questions in my judgment. Okay. Well, all our listeners and viewers, you have your marching orders. Jordan Camp, thank you so much for being on Conjuncture. It's been fantastic to talk to you. Thanks so much, Christina. You're supposed to say thank you now. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks so much. All right. And uh, for everybody else, stay tuned. <laughs>